0: Our Father, as we come to Your Word today, we come as people who are spiritually hungry and who need nourishment, who need encouragement, but also need direction and often discipline. So we pray, Lord, that You would use this passage to remind us of Your great eternal truths of who You are and of Your faithfulness to Your people. Into your promises, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, you'll want to turn to Genesis chapter forty-one. I was going to try to get the whole chapter today, but this is a long chapter—a uh, very long chapter, fifty-seven verses. Fifty-seven verses, and if you know my style of preaching, uh, yeah, you know that that doesn't—that that just can't happen. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 41 today, verses 1 to 40. At the 2008 Summer Olympics, there was a a Swedish Greco-Roman wrestler by the name of Ara Abrahamium, who lost his semifinal match to uh, an Italian wrestler who went on to contend for the gold in the championship match. And the loss didn't sit well with Abrahamium. He went on to win the bronze medal. He was a great wrestler, no doubt about that, but that didn't seem to be any kind of consolation to him as he had to be physically held back from actually charging after and assaulting the judges of his previous match with the Italian wrestler. And his temper tantrum continued even to the awards ceremony, the medal ceremony, after he was uh, awarded the bronze medal, after it was put on him, he immediately took it off and threw it on the ground. And as far as I know, he just left it there and he didn't get it back. How a person responds to failure says a lot about a person. Who you are in moments where you don't succeed says a thousand words about who you are. And and nobody likes a sore loser like this story. Nevertheless, some people carry the attitude that if they're going to lose or if they're going to fail at something, they're going to be sore about it. They're going to take it really personally. But if a person's response to failure says so much about them, if a person's failure says a thousand words about them, how a person responds to success says a million how many times have you seen success go to somebody's head if there's anything worse than being a sore loser i think we can probably all agree that it's being a sore winner i suppose it's now safe to talk about richard sherman now that he's been traded away to our conference rivals the 49ers sherman actually takes the the top award i I don't know how muhammad ali didn't get this but Sherman gets the, the top award in sports history for being a sore, uh, a sore winner uh, in one article from ABC when after intercepting a pass that was thrown to Michael Crabtree a few years ago, Sherman boastfully declared on national television, I'm the best corner in the game, and when you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. It's called being a sore winner. Today we're going to be continuing in our study of, of Genesis, and we're going to see Joseph experienced this, this incredible rise, this meteoric rise from the, the dungeon, from, from, from the pits of, of prison into the palace of Pharaoh. And it's actually a very encouraging and, and uplifting story. It reminds us of God's faithfulness, and so it's encouraging in that way. It's also a challenging story because it's way more difficult to remain humble and God-centered, and God-focused, and God-glorifying when we experience success than it is when we experience failure or loss. Ideally, a person remains the same no matter what their circumstance is, whether they win or lose, whether they, they prosper or they, or they fail. And Joseph does. Joseph remains the same throughout. Now, you might think, okay, this is a, a passage about a guy who has this crazy success story. And uh, so this passage actually has nothing to do with, with me because I don't plan on experiencing the type of rise that he experienced. And if you're thinking that, I, I have two responses to that. Number one, you don't know what God's going to do with you in the future. None of us does. We don't know what he's going to do with us two seconds from now. We have a pretty good idea, maybe, but we don't know. Only God knows. And secondly. The principles that we find in this chapter deal with any form of of gain or any form of exaltation or prosperity, whether it's maybe getting a job promotion or maybe it's uh, doing well in the stock market or, or things like that. But the last we saw of Joseph, you'll remember, he'd been thrown in prison after being falsely accused of making an indecent proposal to Potiphar's wife. But while he was in prison, we talked about how he prospered. We saw that he prospered even in jail. And the jail keeper put every responsibility that he had in Joseph's hands. And before long, two men were thrown into prison with him. Pharaoh's cupbearer, if you'll remember, and his baker. And we saw that each of these men on the same night had a dream. They each had a dream revolving around the number three And Joseph saw that they were troubled by their dreams and God revealed to him the correct interpretation of those dreams. And you'll remember that he had made a request to the cupbearer who was going to be released in three days. The the baker didn't have such fortune. He didn't have such good news ahead of him. But the the cupbearer was going to be released. And so he, he made a small request to the cupbearer whom he had correctly predicted would be set free in three days. He asked the cupbearer to remember him and to make mention of him to Pharaoh in order that he would gain his freedom because he didn't deserve to be down there. And in doing this, he put his hope temporarily in man. And what happened? The last verse of the previous chapter told us: Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Have you ever been forgotten? you ever felt forgotten we all have so we relate to what joseph has gone through here and he must have been extremely disappointed he must have been extremely discouraged i know i would have been but god wasn't done with him not even close life life would go on and god would continue to work in joseph and he'd continue to prepare joseph for two more years As he sat in the in the dungeon of the prison, and as we continue in our study today, we're looking at Genesis chapter forty-one, verses one to forty. The central passage, or the central point of this passage, is that God's timing is always perfect. And in light of that truth, in light of the fact that God's timing is always perfect, every trial, every blessing, every moment that we experience, it's all a gift from God. And that should keep us humble, it should keep us thankful, and it should keep us God-focused and God-glorifying in all that we do. God's timing is always perfect, and so we should understand that every trial and every blessing, everything that we experience is a gift from God, and that should keep us humble, thankful, God-glorifying, and God-focused in all that we do. Now the royal cupbearer forgot Joseph. But the truth is that God didn't. And God was sovereign even over the cupbearer forgetting Joseph. And when Joseph is going to experience success in this passage, he's going to remain humble. And here's the reason. Spoiler alert. It's because he keeps himself focused on the Lord. He keeps the right perspective of his situation. And when you do that, your happiness, your joy your contentedness, isn't contingent upon your circumstances if you keep the perspective that every moment is a gift from God. But the day of his rise to prominence started off like any other day. It was just an average day for him. It started out in the darkness of the dungeon. Let's start out by looking at verses 1 to 8. It says, Now it happened at the end of two full years. That Pharaoh had a dream and behold he was standing by the Nile and lo from the Nile there came up seven cows sleek and fat and they grazed in the marsh grass then behold seven other cows came up after them from the Nile ugly and gaunt and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows then Pharaoh awoke He fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So what we see here is that this passage starts out two years after the end of the previous chapter. So how old does that make Joseph? Well, if you look down at verse 46, we see that he's 30 years old on this day. So that means that he was imprisoned sometime around 27 or 28 years of age which means that he's been in Egypt for about 13 years. If you remember, the first mention that we had of Joseph a few chapters ago was when he was 17 years old. Young, ambitious, kind of had a youthful exuberance and a youthful foolishness about him. But one day... Pharaoh has this, this very vivid dream in which he's standing by the Nile River as seven cows who were fat and sleek grazed in the marsh grass. And that's what the cows would do to escape the heat and the flies. So the, these, these cows are, are grazing in the marsh grass, and as they grazed, seven more cows came up out of the Nile, and these were ugly and, and skinny, ugly and, and gaunt, underfed, And the ugly and and, and gaunt cows consumed the fat and sleek cows. And it jolted Pharaoh awake. Must have just been a a very vivid, very strange dream. It jolted him awake. And if you've ever been awoken by a strange dream before, you you know what it's like. You kind of spend a few seconds trying to figure out, was that real? Uh, What was that? And it seems to be what Pharaoh did. But before long, he was at peace again and he went back to sleep. And so then he has a second dream. One that's maybe even stranger than the first, although the first one was was really strange, but uh, the second one might have been stranger. He sees seven good ears of grain, probably corn, uh, sprout up on a stalk, only for seven thin and scorched ears of grain to rise up and consume the seven good ears. So again... Pharaoh gets startled awake this is a very strange dream. I'm sure that he had to realize that that this is a strange dream, but he's convinced that it means something. That there's some kind of interpretation that is required of these dreams, but he isn't sure what that interpretation could possibly be. He obviously can't figure it out for himself, so he calls all the king's horses and all the king's men who can't put Humpty together again. Right? They all he calls all his wise men, all his counselors. All his magicians, his wizards, they were really kind of ancient sorcerers, uh, pretty pretty much the same thing as as wizards, and and none of these people are able to make any sense of the dreams that Pharaoh had. So all the business that would normally be conducted in the day, all all that stuff comes to a screeching halt, because if Pharaoh ain't happy, nobody's going to be happy. See, the Nile River, it's a significant aspect of the dreams. I think that's probably what scared him because it was vital for Egypt's economy. No Nile, no Egypt. See, Egypt doesn't rely on annual rainfall for watering their crops and and providing water. They rely on the waters of the Nile overflowing every year. And so the first dream was disturbing because it seemed to have something to do with the Nile. And if it had something to do with the Nile... He had reason to be concerned in his mind. Without the Nile, Egypt not only couldn't thrive, but they couldn't survive. They, they couldn't even exist. And that was troubling to Pharaoh. Never mind the cannibal cows and the cannibal ears of, of grain uh, that are acting in a way that uh, is uh, naturalistically impossible and that was contrary to what these things actually do. But when the first dream about the, the cannibal cows was followed up by a dream about cannibal grain or cannibal corn or whatever it is, it was just too much for him to bear. And so he, he he couldn't get back to sleep. He he was totally diseased. You know, he was at dis-ease. And so he gets up, because in verse eight, it says his spirit is troubled. He had two dreams, both revolved around the number seven. Both featured cannibalism of, of some sort, I guess. And both concluded with consuming violence, with with, uh, one animal or one grain consuming its likeness. See, the Egyptians were very superstitious when it came to dreams, so they're not that much unlike a lot of Americans. We tend to be very superstitious about dreams. But it was even more so the case for somebody like Pharaoh, because Pharaoh was thought to himself be an incarnation of a god. So his dreams in their minds, really were supposed to be something special. And he gets the sense that there's something ominous and dangerous about these dreams that he needs to understand. What we're supposed to, to get here is the idea that this is all stunning. Notice in this passage the words, behold and lo. In, in eight verses, they're used six times. Those are words that are supposed to grab our attention, Look at this! Look at this! Look at this! If you get told that six times, you get the point. I'm supposed to be looking at this. So was it just superstition? You know, as readers... Our anticipation is supposed to be building. That's what the author is trying to do by using lo and behold so often through these first eight verses. And our anticipation is high not only because of the repetition of these words, but because this is the third time now in the story of Joseph that a pair of dreams indicated that God was up to something, that God was on the move, that he was doing something. Pharaoh didn't know that. His wise men and his wizards didn't know that. we're supposed to know that this is not just some mere, you know, Egyptian superstition or anything like that. God is getting ready to act. Let's look at verses 9 to 13. It says, Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses, Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. And we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one, he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Now, the the cupbearer to Pharaoh wouldn't normally be the guy to whom Pharaoh would turn for the wisest uh, counsel or or wisdom. The the cupbearer's job wasn't to necessarily provide counsel as much as it was just to prevent Pharaoh from being... uh, Poisoned in his drink. And it wouldn't have been unheard of for them to be very close friends and for the cupbearer to always be nearby. But they would have bonds of friendship because of the nature of their relationship. And so it's on this basis, it's on the basis of their friendship, that the cupbearer gives counsel to Pharaoh upon realizing that none of the wizards and none of the wise men of the king could make any sense of these dreams. So the cupbearer recounts how he was once a prisoner himself, a subject that he obviously wanted Pharaoh to have forgotten about. He seems to be walking on eggshells here. It's like he wanted Pharaoh to to forget about this, but there's some reason to bring this up. So he's approaching it very, very delicately. And he gives a pretty accurate account of all the details, the things that, that had happened two years prior during his time in prison, although he apparently either forgot or decided not to mention that Joseph had attributed his success or his ability to do what he does to God. He said, God is the one who can interpret dreams. And the cupbearer leaves that detail out. And of course, the cupbearer, Conveniently, fails to mention the fact that he had actually been asked by Joseph to remember him when the cupbearer was freed oops but the important thing is that God used this occasion this specific occasion on this specific day to stir the memory of the cupbearer and it's all in perfect timing It's all in in God's timing. Could God have made this happen earlier? Could God have given Pharaoh these dreams two years earlier? Sure, why not? Of course He could have. And I'm convinced that God's timing is not only always perfect, but I'm also convinced that it's the one thing that even the most mature Christian brothers and sisters struggle with. God's timing. I mean, we know up here, right? Right? don't we all know that we, we all know up here that God's timing is perfect and if that's the case we would never if, if it were if we knew it and and really really believed it we'd never feel impatient because God's timing is perfect so we, we know it up here but we're so prone to want his time frame his plans to match up with ours it's kind of like driving if there's one thing that drives me nuts, it's that, you know, to get on a, on a highway, you, you have to kind of speed up on the on-ramp, and when you get behind somebody who's real, real slow, uh, you know, it, it's like, you know, if you were going any slower, you'd actually be going backwards, that type of thing. You ever get in that situation? And here's something that I found surprising. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have found it surprising, but there's actually a name for this. It's called slowness rage. Slowness rage. I found an article titled uh, "Why Your Brain Hates Slow Pokes," and the author explains it this way. She writes, "Quote: Slow things drive us crazy because the fast pace of society has warped our sense of timing." And she goes on to say, "Patience is a virtue that's been vanquished in the Twitter age." Would you agree with that? I, I, Don and I were just talking a few weeks ago about how technology has Uh, Yes, in one sense it's made our lives easier, but in another sense it's also made our lives more complicated, and Don added, and busier, and busier. And it's true, isn't it? Our lives are so busy. We we live in a society that's actually obsessed, I'd say to an unhealthy level, but we're, we're obsessed with progression, we're obsessed with productivity, and quantifying success, and whatever might slow down productivity or progress is seen as something that's bad is seen as something that's to be done away with and and removed from the situation that ideology includes people by the way when it's taken to its logical conclusion which is why we have things like abortion but looking at the story of Joseph how productive has he been for two years these two years, he's been just locked up in a jail cell. How productive, according to our society, I'm saying let's take what, what our culture says and apply it to, to this culture. How productive has Joseph been for two years? According to our standards, we'd say he hasn't been productive at all. In fact, he, he's just cost tax dollars uh, you know, and all, and all those things. But the reality is, that God's been the one who's been productive for the last two years because God has been busy chiseling away at Joseph's youthful pride and foolishness and exuberance. And so during his time in jail, God has had Joseph right where God wanted Joseph to be. In a place where nobody else could influence him. In a place where nobody else could speak into his life really. And he's been refining Joseph's character for two years. Keep that in mind next time you get behind someone who seems to be moving way too slow. And you're tempted to feel a sense of frustrated rage, slowness rage. Keep it in mind for every situation in life also in which it seems like things should be moving faster. It seems like more things should be progressing, but they're not and you get impatient, and you're tempted to to blame God and wonder, what is going on, God? Where, Where are you here? God is working. God is growing you in godly virtue if you belong to Him. And part of that means submitting yourself to His timing. His timing is perfect, like everything else about Him. So be willing to slow down because our lives aren't about us, are they? Are our lives about us? No, we've been ransomed. We don't belong to ourselves. So our lives are not about us. They're about growing in Christ's likeness. And don't think for one second that something like that happens overnight. Because there's this enormous, unfathomably enormous difference between perfect Christ-likeness and us. It takes time. If you consider creation, if you consider what the Bible says about redemption, the unfolding of, of God's plans, we see a God who is never, ever in a hurry. And yet, He is good and perfect in all that He does. So as we're becoming more and more like Christ... What should be happening in us? We should be growing in patience, right? Let's not forget. P. S. You know, don't forget the patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. God's timing is perfect. Ours isn't. And so we need to trust God with that. Let's continue, verses 14 to 24. It says then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them. That's a new detail, by the way. For they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And lo, seven ears withered, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, and there was no one who could explain it to me. So he's just recounting the same thing that we had read earlier, except he'd added a few details in there. But what we see is that Joseph gets hurriedly rushed into the presence of Pharaoh. God is not in a hurry, but the kingsmen of Pharaoh, of Egypt, apparently were. Because again, if Pharaoh ain't happy, nobody is happy. And as Joseph is quickly ushered into Pharaoh's presence, Pharaoh essentially tells Joseph that his reputation as an interpreter of dreams precedes him. And look at how Joseph responds in verse 16. He says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Immediately, he he deflects any credit that could possibly be put on him. But he also deflects any guilt that could be put on him. So Pharaoh retells the dream for Joseph and and reiterates that nobody was able to explain it, which brings us to why Joseph is here. Why is Joseph here? Well, on the surface, from, from a human perspective, it looks like he's there because Pharaoh has summoned him to be there. But the real reason that Joseph is there is to testify to the greatness and to the supremacy and to the unyielding sovereignty of the God of the universe, the God of Israel, the creator, the sustainer, the owner of all the heavens and the earth. And that is the one and only reason that Joseph is really there. But do you see how humble he is? He doesn't want any credit. He doesn't want any glory for himself. I mean, think about this scenario for just a minute what would you be tempted to do if you were in joseph's shoes here i think the temptation would be to try to play up to it a little bit try to play up to pharaoh a little bit try try to get some favor with him because you've been in jail for two years you miss the sun you miss having decent food and so here's this opportunity to get some favor with pharaoh to get on his good side. And I have to think that if Jacob, if, if you remember Jacob, Jacob's a swindler. Jacob's always just looking to, to swindle some kind of deal, right? Jacob, Jacob would have said something like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not too shabby. I, I've, had, I've had my success at interpreting dreams and you know, if you'll let me out of the dungeon, I'll, I'll do what I can to, to help you out here, Pharaoh. I, I can totally picture jo- Jacob saying something like that. But Joseph doesn't. He doesn't take this opportunity, maybe his final opportunity, to gain favor with Pharaoh. As far as he knows, he won't have another chance. And that's because he doesn't have the exact same struggles with the flesh that his father had. He doesn't flinch as he testifies to the fact that apart from God, that aside from God, that without God, there is nothing that he can do to help Pharaoh out. Joseph says, it's not in me. Actually, in Hebrew, that's just one word. It's a very strong, a very very forceful word that might be seen as somewhat self-deprecating. But the point of what he says is to deflect any credit or any glory that might be given to him and to redirect all the credit, all the glory to God alone. Joseph's faith was great his faith and his his boldness don't wilt don't melt don't yield under pressure here keep in mind who he's talking to this is a man pharaoh was a man who was considered to be a god himself but by making this statement about god joseph is essentially saying the one true God is greater and bigger and mightier than and sovereign over every false god you might believe in, including yourself, Pharaoh. Now Joseph could have thought to himself, you know, I, I love and I, and I serve God, but I'd better just keep my faith to myself here. Maybe I'll get a chance to talk about God later. And after serving two years in a, in a dungeon prison, his self-esteem was probably pretty low, right? He he could have used a boost to his confidence. He could have taken that compliment and and said, oh, that feels so good on my self-esteem. Thank you, Pharaoh. Yes, I am pretty good at interpreting dreams. But Joseph was upfront about the fact that any ability that he had, he wanted Pharaoh to know that without God, he was nothing. That's a wonderful thing to testify to, isn't it? That is truly a wonderful thing. And I'm not saying that you should never accept a compliment when people try to encourage you. You know, if I I get an email from somebody or, or, you know, when somebody says, thank you for for your message today, thank you for for being faithful to God, you know, I will always try to sincerely uh, express my gratitude for their kindness and for their encouragement. But at the same time, the struggle that we all face in situations like that is to remember that whatever we're able to do is a gift from God. So, let's say somebody writes me an email and they appreciate a sermon that I preached. Who really gets the glory? God does. And God alone does. Because in my flesh, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I'm not even a good man apart from God's grace working in me, I got nothing. I got nothing. I'd be back in the casinos of Vegas dealing cards or something. No, it's only by God's grace. And so I I do appreciate the compliment, but at the same time, the glory goes to God. See, our our pride can be like a wild dog that is incredibly difficult to restrain and to manage and that will often break free from its leash. But remembering that God and God alone is the one enabling source of anything and everything good that we can do will be the leash, will be the fence that keeps the dog in the yard and prevents it from running wild. Remembering that God is the enabling source of everything anything and everything good that we do will serve to keep us humble. It's okay to say thank you to people. It can seem very disingenuous if you don't. But don't drink your own Kool-Aid, as they say. Don't buy into your own hype. Don't let a compliment cause you to forget that if it were not for God's grace, working in you, working in your life, sustaining your every breath, You couldn't do anything good at all. It is all by the grace of God. So why couldn't the wizards and the wise men interpret the dreams of Pharaoh? I'd have to say it's because their wisdom didn't come from God. I I have to believe that they tried. They tried to figure out his dreams. They did all their their hocus-pocus, mumbo-jumbo stuff, and God didn't allow any of their efforts to produce anything that worked. But now here's Joseph. He's listening to Pharaoh recall the dream. And Joseph will continue to testify to God's sovereign greatness as he interprets the dream. Let's look at verses 25-36. to It says, Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what He is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what He is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him extract a fifth, exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. So Pharaoh's dream was impossible for these other guys, these other men, the wizards and the wise men to interpret. But it's met by an immediate interpretation by Joseph. He doesn't say, let me think about it for a second. He doesn't say, I'll get back to you about it. No, he gives an immediate interpretation. The two dreams, he says, represent the same thing. And based on the fact that he repeats that, that fact, the, repeats that the two dreams are one, it seems like that fact might have been one element uh, that left the wizards and the wise men all perplexed. And that should remind us, by the way, of the two dreams that Joseph had a few chapters back. But the interpretation is pretty simple and straightforward. There were going to be seven years of prosperity in the land, followed by seven years of severe famine. And this won't just be any regular old famine. This is going to be a very severe famine. So the economy of Egypt is on the line. And the lives of Egyptian citizens are on the line. After giving the interpretation, Joseph gives him the wisest counsel Pharaoh could have possibly found in all the earth, and that is to take action now, to prepare for what's coming. Prepare for the disaster that's coming in seven years by spending seven years preparing. So the plan would be to take 20%, one-fifth of the harvest in the years of abundance, and take that 20% and store it, and guard it, so that there will be enough to see them through the seven years of severe famine. Now here, here's what I want you to see, and here's what I, I think Moses probably wanted us to see about the interpretation, and that is this. It is completely God-centered. It is completely God-centered. He refers to God once at the beginning of the interpretation. Look at verse 25. He attributes it to God there. And then he, he does it again in the middle of the interpretation. Look at verse 28. And once again, at the end, in verse 32, Joseph wants to make sure that Pharaoh knows that this will happen. It can't be avoided. This famine is coming. It is as sure as sure can be. Because God has determined it. The God of Israel has decreed it. God isn't just allowing it. He is the one who is actually causing it. Look at verse 32. Joseph says, Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God. Which, by the way, should remind us once again of the two dreams that Joseph had. But let me ask you this. As far as God determining this, causing this famine... Does your understanding of God allow for something like that? Is there room in your theological part of your mind for something like this? Does your, does your understanding of God keep the door open for the possibility that God would not just allow a calamity, that, but, but that He would determine it, that He would cause it? Because if your idea of God rules out the possibility of something like this. Obviously, you need a bigger vision of who God is. You need a deeper understanding of the depth and the breadth of God's sovereign reign over every molecule in the universe. See, was the most powerful man on the planet at the time. And yet, when you compare him to the Most High God. What was He but an ant or or a grasshopper that could be easily squished that didn't offer any kind of threat whatsoever to God? I mean, Pharaoh can take credit for the prosperity of Egypt, all that he wants, but it's nothing in comparison to what God can do to either produce abundance, prosperity, or, or famine. And there's nothing that Pharaoh or any other false god, Egyptian or otherwise, can do to thwart the sovereign God's will and purposes. Joseph wanted Pharaoh to understand, and we too must understand, that God alone is sovereign over the universe. That He is sovereign over life and He is sovereign over death. He is sovereign over abundance and He is sovereign over lacking. He is sovereign over wealth and He is sovereign over poverty, over feast, over famine, and the list goes on and on and on. God is sovereign over it all. It all belongs to the Lord. And He can do with it whatever He wills. See, Egypt's future is not in Pharaoh's hands. And it never was. It was in God's hands all along. And thus, Pharaoh is confronted with the same reality that many, many in our day must be confronted with. And that is that history does not belong to kings, history does not belong to queens, history does not belong to presidents or prime ministers or politicians, history belongs to the Lord. The day after President Trump was elected president, a year and a half ago or so, there was one prominent evangelical leader who tweeted in response to the fact that something like, some demographic report showing that 80% of, uh, of white American evangelicals had voted for President Trump. He, voted, he, he, he tweeted, really, white evangelicals? That's a quote. Really, white evangelicals? As if the future of the country and the selection of our rulers of this country are ultimately really in our hands. They're not. And this is a mystery. I think it's funny that we talk about electing presidents, but really it's God who elects. And the same thing works with salvation. We vote to elect a president. Yes! Yes! But Romans chapter 13 verse 1 says that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. That principle applies to Pharaoh. Down the road a little bit, it would apply to Nebuchadnezzar. Down the road a little bit further, it would apply to Saul. Why do you think David wouldn't go after him? Because he understood this. And then it would apply to David when it was his time, in God's time. It applies to them just as much as it applied to President Obama, and just as much as it applies to President Trump. All earthly authority is established by God, who alone rules over all of human history. Do you think this is important for us to understand? of course it is especially in an age like this we live in such an evil age when politicians are really just the puppets of multi-billion dollar corporations there's so much corruption in the political system we live in a culture right now that is so good at expressing rage and outrage don't we i mean if you get mad about something what do you do you get on social media and you let people know about it. And you try to outrage other people. I'm, I'm madder than this person over here. We live in this era where we are just so good and we feel so free to express outrage. What hope do we have? Our hope is not in men. Our hope is not in politicians. From either side. Our one hope is knowing that God is sovereign over all of history. And that every human authority is only a human authority because God has decreed it. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't do anything? That we should just sit back and say, well, God's sovereign over it all, so I'm just not going to do anything. Let's accept the premise that God is sovereign for a second. Does that justify inaction? Inaction? Or doing absolutely nothing? No. Actually, just the opposite. Think about it. The awareness that Joseph has gained about God's plans from from Pharaoh's dream leads him to boldly declare a call for action. His call to action was based on what he now knew God was going to do. So God's will doesn't eliminate, doesn't erase, doesn't negate human responsibility. I mean, we don't know who the elect are, but we know that God is sovereign over election, and we have the responsibility to preach the gospel. And we can't be selective with that. We have to preach it to everybody because only God knows. Only God knows. He's sovereign over it. Knowing that God is sovereign doesn't produce a passive attitude or at least it shouldn't rather it should lead to us taking action knowing that God is sovereign over salvation means I don't have to try to manipulate somebody into saying a sinner's prayer or something like that all I have to do is be faithful to the scriptures and preach the gospel and know that God is sovereign over whatever happens the results are in his hands not in mine so we don't need to have gimmicks does that make sense Knowing that God is sovereign doesn't produce a passive attitude. It should lead us to action. As one commentator notes of this passage, he says the knowledge of God's purpose is not the end of human planning and action, but the beginning of it. So famine is coming. It's been determined by God. It's been ordained by God. And man has a responsibility to prepare, to act in accordance with God's decree. What has to be going through Pharaoh's mind at this point? He's, he's just had his world rocked. He's just also been confronted by the fact that he has no power compared to Almighty God. What's going through his mind? Let's look at verses thirty to uh, 37 to 40. It says, now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So, Joseph, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. I mean, let's think about it. This bad news could have resulted in Joseph losing his head. Literally. But what a beautiful ending to, to such a, a shocking chapter. Joseph called for Pharaoh to appoint elders to oversee the collection of the food for storage. And Pharaoh's choice is none other than Joseph. And, and look at the reason that, that Pharaoh selects Joseph. Look at verse 38. He realizes that God is working in Joseph. And that seems like a very wise observation on Pharaoh's behalf, given that Joseph's interpretation of the dreams was so God-focused. See, there's a very real danger that in a society like Egypt or in a culture like ours, the one that we live in today, there's, there's a very real danger that any goodness or, that, we, that we possess or that we do would wrongly be attributed to us rather than to God. And it's the inclination of our flesh to wrongly take credit for any goodness that we have or any goodness that we do. But if glorifying God is your daily aim, is something that you really want to do on a regular basis. Yes, there's a sense in which our actions should point to God and should glorify God. But there's also a time when we must be willing to speak very specifically and very directly to the glory and the grace of God. The gospel is not easy to share with somebody. Because it can be very offensive. It is very offensive. It says there's nothing you can do. you've You've already ruined your chances. There's nothing you can do. Your only hope now is the grace of God. That's offensive. I get it. You'll need to be willing to be wise and to be direct and yet gracious as you share the motivation for any good that you have and any good that you do. That motivation being the Gospel when the time is right. I have to think that Joseph would have been ecstatic just to be a free man again. But now he's been elevated beyond his his wildest dreams to the second in command in Egypt. Behind his success, however, is the reality that whether in prison or whether he's in the palace, Joseph was not Pharaoh's man. Nor was he even his own man. He was first and foremost... God's man. What about you? Would people say the same thing about you? Do you believe the same thing about yourself? That you don't belong to others, that you don't belong even to yourself, but that you belong to God? And so you're willing to be obedient no matter what may come. Maybe you'll lose your head, or maybe you'll be elevated. You don't know. God's sovereign over it. God said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, He said, those who honor me, I will honor. And Joseph honored God in all that he did. But let's ask this, what does it even mean to honor God? We have to understand in light of John 5, 23, where Jesus declares, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we honor God by honoring Christ, and we honor Christ by not only confessing before men, but also by seeking to glorify God in all that we do, and seeing that everything that we have is a gift. By the grace of God, may that be said of us. But if you have not repented and believed in Christ, I must address you. Because as surely as Joseph stood before Pharaoh and warned him of this calamity that was to come, if you are not in Christ, if you have not repented and believed in Christ, there is a calamity that is coming for you. And that is God's judgment. And just as God gives provision to Pharaoh through Joseph, so too God has given provision to us, for this calamity that is to come. And that is to repent and to believe in Christ and to seek refuge in Him and thereby avoid the calamity. In God's sovereign wisdom, His plan was to take the calamity upon Himself. To take His own wrath upon Himself on behalf of all who would repent and believe in Jesus. And so this passage reminds us, it points to that, that we must repent and believe before the calamity comes. And may we see that all we have, all that we do, all that we are, every minute that we continue breathing, is all a gift from God. And with that said, don't let success go to your head, and at the same time, don't let failure break your heart. Every moment, every gift comes from His hand in His perfect timing. And so may our growing understanding of this keep us humble, keep us thankful, and keep us committed to growing in Christ's likeness. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for a picture of not only Your sovereign power, but Your sovereign goodness. Your provision. And Your heart. The care that You have even for somebody as wicked as Pharaoh. Father, we confess to You that all that we do that might be good all that we have that might be good it's all from your hand it's all yours and so the glory is all yours and we pray father that as we do good works that you would be glorified and that as we speak truth into the lives of our family and our friends and people that we encounter that we would trust that you're sovereign over the results. But in the meantime, Lord, give us faithful and repentant hearts that that we may walk before you faithfully and be willing to proclaim truth regardless of what the cost may be because we trust in you and we belong to you. We are not our own. Thank you for redeeming us with the blood of Christ. We could never deserve it. We could never earn it. It's only by grace. And so we thank you for your grace. And we pray that you would keep us humble by remembering this truth. And that we would be obedient in all that we do for the glory of Christ. Amen.